This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 462 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Aubrey Lehman. Now, Aubrey has a powerful story of overcoming her hearing loss and becoming a fully functional firefighter. This story resonates with me because as a young boy, I was told I could never be a firefighter because I was colorblind. Well, actually, I wasn't colorblind. It was a misdiagnosis, just color deficient. But so many of us are told we can't do things because of academic challenges, because of physical challenges. And there are men and women who have forged a path to show us that we can. And Aubrey has definitely done that in the world of the hearing impaired. So this is an incredibly powerful story of some people who believed in her, some mentor figures, and of some workplace harassment where the crew that she was around worked against her. So there are so many takeaways from this conversation between challenging your physical limitations and being part of the solution versus part of the problem. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast. It climbs a virtual ladder and is therefore more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Aubrey Lehman. Enjoy.
So, Aubrey, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me today. So, where on planet Earth are we finding you right now? I'm in New Jersey right now, so living a good life in New Jersey. Beautiful. So, I like to start chronologically. So, tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. I was born in the Dominican Republic. And I was adopted at five weeks old by an Irish American family. And it all went from there. They did not know I was deaf until I was about two years old. They're like, why is she not talking? Why is she not like turning her head to her sounds? At the time, people were not well aware what being deaf was. So they thought I was just lame. So I went to a whole bunch of different doctors, and then one doctor finally said, she's deaf. And my parents said, what is that? She can't hear you. That's why she's not responding to any sounds, your voices. So my parents said, okay, what's the next step? So we did speech therapy. So they found a place called, a place called the Helen Beebe Center out in eastern Pennsylvania. The center's been around for years, apparently, so... Not a lot of people knew about it because not a, a large population because a lot of people are like, what do we do with deaf kids? So it's it's hard to describe. It's like outcast in a sense. So the center was kind of hidden away. So you just had to seek it out. So I went there for about two years and my speech therapist said, I'm not progressing. At the time, they had my hearing aids, but they were very new, very new technology. So my speech therapist told my parents she stopped progressing. Her hearing loss is so severe. It's not picking up things. She picks up a little bit, but it's not enough. So I went to, I was referred to a speech therapist in Mountainside, New Jersey. She's, she was great. She was fantastic. She learned from Helen Beebe herself, before Helen Beebe passed away, so Helen Beebe was able to pass on a little bit of knowledge on how to handle tough kids. I was basically a tough kid because I was frustrated. I was scared because I didn't know what was going on. Most kids that age are already learning and conversing a little bit, babbling, talking with their parents. I wasn't doing anything, so I was very difficult and this speech therapist was very patient with me and she also noticed the same thing the other speech therapists noticed. I was not progressing with the hearing aids. So she also, she recommended what was called a cochlear implant and the technology was still upcoming. The company that my parents picked was not FDA approved yet. So my parents followed this company until they were ready to start implanting people. So my speech therapist continued to work with me, and she finally called my parents and said, hey, I've been following this. Have you guys noticed that they're starting to do the clinical trials? Do you want to put me through the clinical trials? At first, my parents were hesitant because it was not approved yet, and I was seven. I was one of the youngest to be implanted, and it was down in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins Hospital. So they called the doctor and they asked the doctor all these questions, you know, how bad is the procedure, what is it, what's involved. And the doctor, I remember the doctor 
just giving them looks and stuff. Like he's trying to reassure them, but he was frustrated as well because understandably he wants to get this technology rolling and my parents were scared. So obviously, you know, she's human nature to get frustrated. So they still remember that the doctor was fantastic. His name was John DeParco. And we went down to Johns Hopkins. My parents talked to him. I'm just sitting there, like, thinking to myself, what's going on? What are they going to do to me? And I still had a sense of awareness, even though I was not able to convey what, what how I felt. But I just knew that I'll be okay. So I have a surgery and everything, and I will tell you this, the surgery was painful. It was six hours long. So at the time, they took a big chunk out of your bone in your brain, and it was painful. And I remember just rolling away out of my parents' bed, just crying and screaming in pain. So I had no sense, it's like I had no sense why I was hurting so bad. But I knew I had the surgery for a reason. So as time went on, I got the staples taken out and they put the, it was, at the time, it was like a square box with a long cord. So they told me, just, they motioned to me, sit down. So I just kind of sat in the high chair and they just clipped it on in my head and I heard beeping sound. And at that time, a calmness came over me. It's like, I kind of knew, okay, maybe I heard something. <laughs> so it's true when, when you see the videos of the babies on YouTube and everything, they just, you can see the calmness, they just turn and look. That's exactly what I had at age seven. So it was like, it'll be awkward because it's cute when babies do it, but I was just like sitting there just, and the audiologist went through the motions, she did the beeps and everything. It was, it was something else. I was like really happy. And I still had no sense of awareness of what was to come. So I mean, I continued to go with speech therapy. And I think I want to say in about five or six months later, I finally said my first word. I comprehended. It's like my brain was listening to my parents talk. And out of the blue, I said, hot. Because I heard my mom say it. And I repeated it back finally. And everybody just looked at it. I just remember my mom looking at me, what did she just say? And I said, hot. But that was my word. And as time went on, I started picking up more words and more sounds. So it was, it was really amazing. And the speech therapist continued to work with me. And then she started to work with me on putting correct sentences together. So she would say, hot water. And then I would say, hot water. And then she'll mix it up and say, there is hot water. And then I would put that together. And then that's how I started to pick up, okay, this is how you put sentences together. This is how you have conversations with people. And we did that for years. And I finally picked up whole conversation at the age of 10. I was a late start and it, it was rough. And then I was, at 10, I was like having conversations with people and everybody was like, Wow, you, she's come this far because you have to start talking at a young age with babies. And the hospital was just shocked. They were just blown away with how well I talked and how well I progressed within the two years. 
And they were like, this technology is fantastic. And then as time went on, people were becoming more accepting of the technology. Because still at the time, they were like, why are you changing your kid? Why are you doing this to your child? And as, as time went on, people were saying, wow, this really helps. But at the same time, it gave the doctors the realization that you still have to start early. Because that was still unusual. Because a lot of people thought I would never talk or be able to comprehend a normal conversation. And the speech therapist kept working with me. And as time went on, I started to calm down, be less aggressive and less less mean. Yeah, I was pretty mean. I would be faces at her. I was just like, why are you doing this to me? You're annoying me. And she's very calm. She worked with me because I was getting frustrated because I was tired of the speech therapy. So I, I was with her from, I want to say, age nine to age 15. So finally, she's like, all right. And I, we finally had our first grown-up conversation. When I was 15, I said, look, I don't think I need you anymore. Like, I'm at the point where I'm self-sustainable. As she's like, I never thought this day would come that you actually tell me that you could finally be your own person now and stop coming to see me. And I'm like, she's just starting to cry. She's like, you were, I knew there was something in you. You were special and as mean, as difficult as you were. She's like, I just knew it. And I, I'm just shocked that it took this long for you to speak up. I said, what can I say? I'm a teenager. I'm 15 now. I'm my own, I know it all. She's like, she's like I get that. And then I miss her. She's she's really fantastic, and um, I owe everything to her. And I said to her, you know what? I want to do animal rescue. And she's like, really? So yeah, I want to do animal rescue. You know, I love animals, and that's what I did for a year. And then as life went on, it's like we lost contact. And at that time, my home life became progressively worse. Um, my parents were just they they did right by me by gave me the cochlear implant. But because I was so difficult growing up from that time period, from when I was five weeks old to fifteen, they held some resentment and because I had a brother. His name was AJ. Um he's their biological son. So I was right, they had that dynamic going that he was their favorite because he didn't fight back. He he taught like a normal person just from the get go and which is easy going. And he's still easy going to this day. I'm still feisty, but my parents held some of that resentment from back then. They were not understanding that it's not my fault. I was just as scared and frustrated as they were. But they held that resentment and they were telling me, why do you want to do animal rescue? Why do you want to do this stuff? It's like, you need to stay behind. You need to stay home. You need to stay outside. And I was not understanding. It's like, okay, what's going on? And they're like, you've embarrassed us all these years. Did they try to mainstream me in regular school? And I just wasn't having it because I, I just wasn't there yet because of my hearing issues and my speech issues. So I did not... I was considered not normal. So I couldn't be mainstream. It's nobody's fault. 
But they said, you need to stay outside. You know, you're talking too much. You're doing too much. And I said, come on now. And then, unfortunately, 9-11 happened. And I watched it on TV. And I said to myself, I want to do more than animal rescue. Those guys, those men and women were heroes. And I want to be there for people regardless of the difficulties they had growing up. I said, the animals are grateful in their own way, but they can't talk back. And I want to say, I want to hear somebody say, thank you, and just see the smile on their face. And just seeing those people just run to those towers without the unknowns, like, it was just powerful. And, and it just set something off in me, say, you know what? I was meant to do it. And my parents were like, well, are you sure you could do it? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And they're like, there's no deaf firefighters, there's no deaf EMTs. And I'm like, you don't know that. I said, if I'm the first one, they're great, fantastic. Like, well, no, no, you need to sit down, go find something else to do, do your animal rescue. And I told my teacher in school, and I said, you know what? I want to be a firefighter in EMT. And he said to me, I think you should sit down. You can't. You're just a pretty face. You can't do it. And I was shocked. I, said, I just looked at him. I said, you're really telling me that? I said, you're my teacher and you're telling me that I'm just a pretty face. And then one student was like sitting over there right across from me. And he just gave me this look. I'll touch on him in a little bit, but he just gave me this look like, really, did the guy just say that to you? I said, okay, that's your opinion. So I joined my local fire department as a junior firefighter. I asked him, I said, hey, can I join your department? You know, are you looking, do you have like a junior program? Because I've heard about it. They're like, how old are you? I said, 16. They're like, how far away are you? I said, I'm pretty far, but I can ride my bikes in the firehouse. They're like, all right, we like you. It was hard. I I made the third track. There was no way I was going to meet the first or second track. So I, I walked my bike in the firehouse, and they were still uneasy on me. They're like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, you're riding your bike. You know, we never had anybody like you before. You, you're unusual. I said, don't worry, I'm homeless. And as time went on, the guy started accepting me. He started showing me the ropes and everything. And the one kid at school, I heard the teacher say that. He's like, you're really doing it. I said, yeah, I am. I said, watch. And time went on. I turned, I finally turned 18. And the chief said, you know what? You're 18 now. You're ready for fire school. And I'm like, what's that? Like, you go to the fire school. Learn to be a firefighter. It's, we don't teach you to be a firefighter. We just teach you what it's like. Some of the things you've been doing is not real firefighter. So, oh, okay. At the time, my chief did more than what junior firefighters are allowed to do. So, because I touched the tools, I went inside the, the house after the fire was out at the overhaul with the guys. So, he did stuff that he's not supposed to do. Well, I didn't know, so I thought I was doing everything. Aside from going to the burning building, I knew that, but I did everything the guys did. I went up on the, the bucket and the, the ladder. I did everything. So he's like, 
Are you ready for it? Yes, said, of course. Why wouldn't I not be? He's like, it's not going to be easy. Like, you know, you're different. It took us a long time to accept you. It's like you're going out there to other people that are not as understanding. I said to him, that's all right, I'm cool with that. And I started, I said, you know what? Let me go to EMT school first. So I did EMT school first, and it was tough because I couldn't use a stethoscope. And they were going to fail me for not being able to use a stethoscope. And I, my mom, as horrible as she was, I asked her for help. She went on the internet. She found a lady out in California who was a nurse who made her own stethoscope for her cochlear implants. I don't know how my mom did it, but she did do, she did right by me finding that lady, and the lady did not charge her mom. And she made the whole stethoscope for me, and my mom said, Here you go. It's like, she's like, Make sure you pass. I said, Chill, chill. And I showed up at EMT school, and I said, Yes, my stuff is good. And the teachers were like looking at me like they were just talking about you that you feel that you should not be EMT and you come in with this. I say, Yeah. And they're like, show us how it works. And I just showed my clipping on into my G mic and I did everything. I did practicals and everything and we went through the motion. They're like, Wow, you came this close to flunking out. And I said, I know. Anyway, we like you. And then we did. I went, I blended in with everybody else. They didn't single me out again. So I'm like, all right, cool. You know, you have lunch. And I, have, I was sitting with the teachers having lunch. They're like, you're really good to be EMT, huh? I said, yep. And I was still young back then. And I passed the written. I passed everything. And all the instructors shook my hand and said, yeah, go on and do great things. I said, I don't know about that. He's like, I'm still mad at you guys for wanting to funk me out for not giving me a chance. Like, we deserve that. That's it, but thank you for letting me show you. And not long after passing MT school, I went to fire school, all my senior year of high school. And fire school was, was going really well until I got halfway through the program. I don't know if I did something wrong or somebody told the instructors that I had a cochlear implant. So I was pulled aside and the chief instructor asked me, he's like, do you wear hearing aids or something? I said to him, no, I don't. He's like, you're fibbing. I said, yes, sir, I did fib. He said, why did you do that? Because I said, I had a little bit of an issue in MT school. I said, I do not want to flunk out of fire school. And he looked at me and said, how did you pass the medical? I said, what do you mean, how did I pass the medical? He said, they didn't list you as deaf. I said, why would they? Because I passed the audiogram. I did everything required. And he's like, the audiogram shows you as normal. I said, yeah, I can score normal and above normal. And he's like looking at me, he's like, sit here for a minute. And he pulled, he got one of the instructors and the one instructor sat down with me and he sat down again. He said, it's, 
this is what this is. You're not hearing the directions correctly. I said, that's bound to happen. I said, we're supposed to be working together. I don't know what is involved with fire school. I said, I don't know. It's like, we never had anybody like you before. And he wasn't wrong. I was still unusual. And they both let me say, take some time off, and then we'll, we'll review on what, what we can do for you. I said, why are you going to do that? I said, just because I didn't hear the instructions correctly. They're like, well, you're going to be a danger in the fire service. You're going to be a hazard. And we can't, we can't be liable for you. And I went back and I told my chief, I said to him, did the instructors call you from the fire camp? He's like, yes, I did. yes, they did. And I talked to him. And I told him how well you've done in our station and how dedicated you are and how you still push on. And I explained to him, yes, she's going to have some issues. And rightly so. Any deaf person is not going to catch everything. And he explained to them, it's the way you in the fire ground. Nobody has perfect hearing in the fire ground. So he got them with that. So I took the time off and I came back and they sat me down and like, we can help you with fire school, but we may not give you your state certification. And at the time I'm like, okay, I just looked down and said, okay, because I didn't know what that meant. And I went through the classes, I went through the school, and some of the instructors started singling me out. They're like, well, you just sit down, you know, don't worry about it, just go over there. And I'm like, thinking to myself, I said, what's going on here? It's like, I took time off and I'm being treated differently. And I still, some of the students were like, why are you pushing her aside? She's done everything so far. It's like, just leave her alone. And I said to them, just don't worry about it. Let the instructors do their own thing. I said, they want to be like that. That's fine by me. I said, don't you stand up for me. And one of the guys got really mad. He's like, you guys need to stop. And I said, just sit down. And if, over time, the instructors kind of eased off of me because they realized the class wasn't going to stand for it. And I appreciated that. But at the same time, it's like I was a little bad because I wanted to prove myself by myself. But I was already too late at that point. And we had a live burn fire that everybody has to do to pass for the fire school. My implant fell off. I didn't have anything to hold in place. I didn't know. And it fell off, so it was dangling inside my foot. And I thought I lost it. So everybody was like shouting at me, the instructors are telling me, do this, do that. And I could tell everybody's like waving their hands. And I'm like, I, I got to tell them it fell off. And I'm like, I stepped down and I said, I pointed to my head. I said, it fell off. And they're like, like flapping their hands, looking at me. It's like, what are you doing? I said, no, it fell off. So I slipped off to the side and I found it again. And it was just hiding, it was just dangling, and I had to put it back together. I said, it fell off. I said, I wasn't expecting this, neither were you. And I said, are you going to let me go back in? And I said, let me try something. So I just took it off. And I, I said to two of my buddies that I came close with the fire school, I said, he just be my partner. And then let's just roll with it. And I said, you got me? And they were already tired because they already did the evolutions, but they still did it with me and I passed.
they just they knew to kind of help guide me a little bit and kind of shake me a little bit because I can't hear if I'm stationary too too long. So if it fell off again, they could shake me, make it seem like I'm still moving. And I pass and the instructor, the one instructor say, how'd you do that? I said, do what? I said, I found a team. And I said, I had a good report on these people. They understood and they kind of, kind of felt each other a little bit. And he's like, I'm impressed. And I really didn't think you were going to pass your live fire. And I said, you're right. I didn't think I was going to pass either. And he's like, good job. And I said, cool. And time went on. Everybody got their search and everything. And I started texting some people. And I said, did you guys get your state search? They're like, yeah, we did. And I called the fire academy. I said, I have the standard college certifications, but I don't have a state fire one. And they're like, well, remember we told you that you may not get it. And I said, I remember that conversation. I didn't think you guys meant it literally. And I didn't know what you guys meant by it. And... They're like, we're not going to give it to you. We're not going to sign you up. I said, why? I, I passed everything. I had I had a good team. I said, yes, I messed up the first time. I own up to it. And yes, it's my fault. I should have known. Gave you guys a heads up that I was going to fall off. And the, the time went on. And it was six months later. And I finally said, I called the director. And I said, where's my seat, sir? We're not going to give it to you. You don't need it. I said, yeah, I do, but I want to be a firefighter. He said, you technically are a firefighter. You went from fire school. I said, I need that said, Because nobody's a firefighter. Unless you have to stay fire one. And my battalion chief got on the phone and said, look, she proved herself at the station. She's done what she's supposed to do. I said, she's proved herself to us. We have no problem with her. And she's attended other classes elsewhere. And the director said, well, she's a liability. You can't sign her off. And she said, it's not up to you. It's your job to teach the students. It's your job to teach them the basics. It's up to me as a battalion chief and any other battalion chief out there to continue the education. She's in my station. I'll take the liability. Again, she's worked hard. She's proved herself she's, that she could do the work that we do. And I'm six foot five. I said, she's five foot two. She she could drive me across the floor. I said, what more do you want? So we understand there's a liability attached to the hearing issue. That goes for any workplace. And I was like, okay, my chief. I said to him, drop my phone back. He's like, no, I'm not done yet. I said, okay. And then they kept talking. He's like, can you just step out for a minute? I said, all right. So they had a couple more words. That I came back and he said, he's willing to, the just want to talk to you. The director said to me, it's going to hurt me, but I don't want to give you that soon. But I'm going to have to talk to your chief and I'm sorry for putting you through that. And I said, no problem. I said, thank you, I needed that. And I finally got in the mail. On my, I actually got my state fire one. It's the happiest day of my life. I'm like, I actually did it. And I showed my mom. And my mom was like, oh, wow, you did it. And my brother was starting the Navy ROTC program. So she's like, oh, my brother. She's like, 
before I was like, yeah, you know, he's Navy and I'm standing here. I'm like, mom, look, I got my final one. And I could see, I could sense that family dynamics still off, even though he's military, he's getting ready to go into the military, the Navy and everything. I'm like, mom, look, I'm doing this, you know, it's different sectors. And my mom was just like, okay, cool, you know, and I said, you know what, no biggie. And then I was with, my, with that department for about four years. And as I started going to the workforce, I started to work so many hours and I was just not making enough calls. And I found another department that had duty crews to like help so I could pick the duty crew hours and put my time in. And it worked out great. And I was, I was sad to leave that one department, but they understood that, okay, I'm working. I just can't respond from home because I'm not there. Mm-hmm. I was working up in Twin for Capital Health. So I was like, it was a ways away. It was like an hour away. So obviously I'm not going to make calls. And, and I was just up there because I was still in school too. And so the, the new department, it, it was, it was strange to say the least when I first joined. I was like, okay, you know, you're fully packed qualified. You have your fire one. And, and I went to one of the commissioners. I said, you might really fire one. They're like, yeah, you're good to go. And then a couple people in the department got one call. And I picked, I picked up the line. And they're like, oh, no, you're not packed qualified. I said, what do you mean I'm not packed qualified? It says, it says in your application that you're deaf. I said, yeah, I know I'm deaf. And like, deaf means you can't do anything. I said, no, you're misunderstanding. So I just backed off and I just waited to let them call. I said, what's going on? You guys told me I was not qualified. Like, well, there's a miscommunication. We didn't realize that being deaf, I said, I understand I'm deaf. I said, well, the deaf people we talk to are not able to talk. They sign, they don't hear. And I said, I understand that, but I'm actually having a conversation with you. But they had in the head, deaf means that nothing. So I'm like, I'm talking to you right now. I said, yes, I'm deaf. And I'm like, well, let me think about it. And I said, you can think about it. So I just kept doing my own thing. And then I still had to prove myself. So I continued to prove myself. And they finally came around. And I was happy. And I did the training. And I showed them again, like I did with my other department. And they're like, wow, she's actually doing it. And I actually got a, um, a junior firefighter who was like struggling. Like, I can't do this. He had ADHD. And I said, look, listen, I'm different too. I said, I talk funny. I said, you may be hyper. You may get frustrated. But I talk funny. I said, just stick by me. We'll get, I'll get you through this. He's like, yeah, you do talk kind of funny. I'm like, I know. And he started laughing. So he, <laughs> he had a, he had a rough time. So he, he was, everybody thought he was just quirky, strange. So he was happy that he had somebody that talked funny. So it made me happy to help him through. And he stayed with the department for a while. And I stayed with that department for a while. And it was really fantastic. I still talked to a lot of them and they were really surprised at how well I progressed quickly and how I was willing to go through training because I used to attend classes all the time for them. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I met my boyfriend and he's like, can you leave the fire department? I'm like, 
But I'm going to leave the fire department. She's like, I'm not so sure if you should be doing it. It makes me nervous. And I'm like, I'll be doing it long, a lot longer than I've been around you. She's like, well, I want to start a family with you. I was like, what? And at that time, I was still playing on going Korea as a firefighter, so I was still young. He's like, um, I don't want a family right now. And he's like, please. And I'm like, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a paid firefighter. I had a couple applications in, and you all know how love gets to everybody if you're smitten in love. And he finally got to me. He's like, all right. So I took time off from the department, and I was still working. And I said, all right, you know what? I'll take time off, and then we'll start a family. And that's when I started my family. And I was out of the game for about five, six years. So I was, I was miserable during that time, even though I was happy I had my boyfriend and had my son. I was like missing that part of me. Like I was meant to be a firefighter at UMT. And I started doing the applications again. And I realized that I was just out of shape. There was no way I was going to pass the physical journey test because I was not on my A game anymore. And I, and I just kind of stepped back from that. And I was very heartbroken and I let my EMT cert go and I'm, I regret playing the girl and I'm not able to get my new EMT back now because it's, it's so ridiculously hard to get. And the boy was like, what's going on? What's wrong? And he's like, I'm like, I miss being a firefighter. I miss being EMT. And he's like, well, you know, you could join the fire department when just when our son gets older, and then I have my daughter. So that set me back even more. And I'm like, oh. So I'm like, all right, you know what? Just sit back, chill, and enjoy being a mom. But that part of my heart was missing. And my kids were finally old enough. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get back into it. And I got back into it. And it was just, it was horrible. It was hard because... If you don't use it, you lose it. So I was back to square one. So I got picked on for being for having the years on paper and not having what's the word I'm looking for? The skill set that I had back then because I wasn't using it. So I was like, oh, you've been a firefighter this long. You're not, you're fumbling. I said, I, I, I had kids. That's the part that some people don't understand that it's okay to be a parent. It's okay to take time off as long as you're learning and you get back into the game and you admit your faults. And I said, I said to the people, I said, what do you want me to admit that I'm perfect? I've seen some firefighters that just fresh out of fire school say, I'm perfect. I know it all. So I told them, flat out, I don't know what I'm doing. I need a refresher. And that backfired on me. So that made me a target. And I was a target because of my hearing as well. They're like, how did you pass fire school? You know, I say I was out. I was a mom. So it was very hard and I had my heart broken. And I I just said to myself, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to do it anymore. And that was recently. And it was just a lot of things from my bare childhood. And I was heartbroken and I tried to kill myself. 
last summer, August 20th. I took a lot of pills. If it wasn't for EMS in the ER, I wouldn't be here. So it's a lot of factors that played to that. I had my heart broken by people that I trusted. And I felt, okay, as long as I'm, I'm honest and I tell the truth that I don't know what I'm doing, that they'll be understanding. And I had no idea it would make me a target of extreme criticism. And I still carry that pain, even though I'm still standing here. Because I read to those people, and it was it was just horrible. And I've tried to move forward from it and continue to do what I'm doing, to be there for the people and continue to be a firefighter. I'm not as active as I once was just because of what I've been through. So I, my heart's just not there anymore. It's like once your heart's broken by something that you are so dedicated to, it just changes you. So I'm still struggling with being a parent. I will admit I'm, I haven't been the greatest mom, um, but I'm trying to fix that. And the same thing with my boyfriend, the dynamic's different when you're a woman in the fire service. Because the male usually goes to the fire call. They leave the kids home with the mom. So it's like the mom had that motherly instinct and they were there doing the dinner, you know, they took care of the kids, but it was different. And it hurt my family. It really did. And I, re- I just regret that I wasn't able to protect myself and just keep the fire service separate from my family. Because I brought it home. I'm like, why are these people doing this to me? It's like, they, I was highly recommended for my other departments. And I'm like, what's going on here? And it just wasn't the same for me anymore. So... That's why I'm putting this out there that you could do everything right by the buck. And you could still be a target of criticism, no matter what you do. And it goes for the same thing with leadership. It starts from the top. The managers, the chief officers, anywhere you go, they could tell you, okay, you do this and this and this and this. And then the firefighter or police officer, EMT, does what, they, what they're told. And the manager comes back to tell them, you're doing it wrong. And then that person stops going above and beyond. And then when a new person comes in, they will go above and beyond for the new person. If a new person becomes problematic because they don't know what to do because the middle ground person not helping them. And going back to getting my heart broken, I was that middle ground person, and I had a new firefighter. I was eager, wanting to learn. They found me on the internet, and like, can you teach me? And can you help me? And I said, I can help you. I can teach you, but I wasn't motivated to help that person. As time went on, I said to myself, well, "Wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm becoming that person that's going to feel this probationary firefighter." And I caught myself and I sat probationary member down. I said, look, 
listen, I've been through a lot. Like I said, I'm not as enthusiastic, I'm not as motivated as you want. So that was me years ago. And I said, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you through your probationary period. I'm going to get you get you through what you got to do. And I said, but understand, I am just not what I once was. You've heard stories about me, but I'm not what I once was. And I remember what did me say? Wow, it's like you really admitted that you're you're not there. I said, no, I'm not. And I said, I'm working my way out of it. I want to be just like you. I want to be motivated. I want to be happy. I want to be all in just like you. And I said, you may may just help me do that. And little did I know, this probationary five was inviting me to all these events and everything. And that's how I got into the stair climbs. And he's like, do you know what a stair climb is? I said, no, I don't know what a stair climb is. It's like people do steps to remember the fallen firefighters. That's it. That sounds pretty cool. And then he showed me a video of him doing it. I said, I like working out. Like anything that has to do with working out, like do a stair climb with me. So I did a stair climb with him. And we were doing the steps together. And he just had this smile on his face. And I'm like, what are you smiling at? He's like, I think the old you is coming back. <laughs> I said, no, it's not. He said, come on, admit it. I said, you're right. So the camaraderie, just seeing everybody in that stairwell, just remembering the fallen firefighters, just seeing everybody in that stairway, just all hot and sweaty and just fist bumping each other and high-fiving. And I said to myself, Wow. This is absolutely powerful, especially after witnessing the towers come crashing down all those people. I'm like, this is teamwork. I said, what happened to me was unusual. I said, I shouldn't hold it against anybody else. And we got to the top. And the probationary firefighters gave me this big, huge hug. And he's like, you did it. And I said, you're right, I did. And then we started working together some more. And I, I felt my skill set come back to what it once was. And I felt myself being confident again. And I'm just, I was just blown away. It's like, been around the fire service for this long. And this new firefighter comes in for a new. And he's teaching me again. I thought it was great because... Most people say, okay, the new firefighters know anything. They don't know what they're doing. But some of those new firefighters have something in them that can re- reignite the passion of an old firefighter again. And I had that. So I, I try to tell people, actually, give the rookies a chance. Listen to them. Give them your stories as well. Just listen to them. Listen to their passion. Listen to their drive. They're fresh out of fire school. They're excited. They just listen. And I said it will crack away the coldness that you that you gained for being in the fire service for so long. And some of the older firefighters picked up on that. And some they tried it. And it was funny one guy was like, he called me up, he said, I can't believe this probationary firefighter is all hyper. He's like He's a gander. He's talking about this and this and this and this and that. I said, just roll with it. Just listen. You'll calm down. 
then a couple weeks later, he called me and said, wow, that used to be me. And I said, I know. I was exactly the same way as you. Say, it can be you again. I said, you don't have to wear the fire shirts out of the supermarket. You don't have to wear a whole bunch of pages and listen to call home. I said, but keep that in you. And then it's, it's, it was really cool seeing that domino effect. And I slowly starting to forget about my suicide attempt and my heartbreak. But unfortunately for my children, they still remember Anytime I walk outside the door, they say to me, Mommy, don't leave. Because I don't know what's going to happen to you. And that breaks my heart. And suicides are, it's rampant. The fire MSB, especially law enforcement. And these children, it will affect them forever regardless of whether you survive your suicide attempt or you're successful. These children, it, it changes something in them. They're more agitated, they're more anxious, and they're more nervous. Because they believe they did something wrong in order for that one parent to go. So I could definitely see the first-hand effect of it. Like I said, it doesn't matter if you survive or die. It, it, it hurts the family, no matter what. And it's hard for me. Every time I step out that door to go in the firehouse, I think about my kids. It's like, they used to be happy about me going to the firehouse. They used to be happy about me going to the store. Now they're nervous. So I have to work on rebuilding their trust, showing them, okay, I did what I did. And I said to them, when you guys get older, I'll explain to you that you guys did nothing wrong. It was a culmination of my childhood and the hard times I had within the fire service. And I said, it's nothing bad. It's like not one person did anything to me in the fire service. I said, I've approached things wrong as well. I said, I approached things wrong in my childhood, in my work life, and the fire war. My kids were okay, mom. And so this lonely starting to regain the confidence. It's going to be a long, hard road. I, I went out to the store the other day. I said, guys, I'll be right back. They're like, okay, mom. Well, I can sensing their face. They're nervous. So that being said, going back to the stair climbs, I ran into a person at one of my events it turns out he was he was watching me years ago when I had um, MySpace. I'm like, that's creepy. And he's like, <laughs> I'm like, MySpace. I'm like, he's like, yeah, MySpace. Like, yeah, you were talking about how you were going to go Korea and everything. And he started chit-chatting. I'm like, no, I said, I'm just, it's been hard. I've been a what? And he's like, even you inspired me. Like, I... I thought about being a firefighter and I remembered you. And I said, I remember your name. But somebody called out your name at the stand. I'm like, I said to myself, is that her? And then you look completely different, you straight hair. And I said, because I have curly, messy hair. And I said, and I want, and I said, I've been looking at you for a while. And I said, you know what, I'm going to approach you. And I can't believe that's you. And 
and we just stared at each other. I'm like, I'm like, I was still weird now. I'm like, MySpace. What the heck? And, he, and he, you inspired me because you, you were open. You talked about being deaf and you didn't let those people get to you. And I said, I, I'm not like I was before, but I'm slowly getting back there. I said, I have a probationary firefighter who's like enthusiastic. So she's helping me remember what I was. And he's like, hey, can I help you too? And I said, sure. How do you plan to do that? He's, and he said, yeah, take my cell phone number. They text me. He texted me after the stair climb. And I texted him. And he said, I got something for you. And he mailed it to me. It was his department patch. And he, and he wrote a little note and he's like, tuck this away somewhere. You don't know who you're inspiring. There's people out there watching you. Keep doing what you're doing. I know you're hurting, but don't give up. And I'm like, wow. I still have his department patch tucked away. And once in a while, pulling out, I was like, he remembered me from all those years. I'm like, absolutely amazing. And he's still in the fire service. Once in a while, we'll chit chat, and he's still doing it. He's hoping to go Korea. So I'm like rooting for him, and it's, it's really cool. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Like, my space is like so old. That's, that's the one story that really got to this. Like, and he told me there's people watching you, don't even realize it. It's not wrong. No, not at all. Well, it's, it's so powerful. And thank you for taking, you know, the time to kind of lead us through because you, first you saved me asking a lot of questions because you just, <laughs> you led us through, which was beautiful. But pulling things from that, I mean, the, the things that are very glaring are along that journey, there were people who were mentors that saw that, yes, you had a challenge, but that all that meant was you got to figure a way around it. And there were people that were threatened by, you know, your challenges, disability, whatever the, the, the term would be. And, you know, we're, we're looking for a reason for it not to work. And I've had people, just the most amazing human beings that were either born without limbs or, you know, lost them in, in combat or an accident or whatever it was. Um, I, I was told I couldn't be a firefighter for my color vision. For years and years and years, I believed it till one day I, again, had to figure out how to get past that. I had um, the tubes in my ears several times when I was young. So I actually had mild um, hearing problems myself. So hearing again that... In your story, you can be a person who believes and, and lifts someone up, you know, and empowers them to to forge their own journey and, you know, lead them to success, or you can actually be part of the compounding effect that leads them to taking a bunch of pills. So, you know, I mean again, like you said, and, and you were I'm glad that you did, you know, there was that ownership element, of course, we all have that. But I also point a lot about the environment that we're in. Do we do we have an environment that sets people up for success or do we have an environment that sets them down a very dark path? So, you know, with you navigating both of those kind of almost like pinballing off good people and bad people, it's a very very powerful story. Thank you. So, w with that, um a couple of things I wanted to pull out. So, firstly, you mentioned your kids and that's an, that's I haven't really had anyone talk about a post-suicide attempt and the impact on on their kids. So were they actually aware of what had happened then? 
they I sent them away. They I that day was I was very upset. And I kept it to myself. I said, you know what? Kids, you're gonna go to grandmoms. I said, don't argue with me. I was very strict. I was straightforward and they were like, Mommy, what's going on? Why are you acting like this? I said, just stop. I said, you're going down there. And I got out of my town. I made sure I was away and I knew in my home that I was going down that path. And I knew I did not want to be there to me and my kids on. But I knew there was no way that I was going to pull myself out. I knew I finally hit that point and but I had enough sense in me to get the kids away. And I just drove to a different town. I bought all those pills, bought the the NyQuil, I chugged it down, I took a lot of Tylenol, drank Red Bull, I had a, a bottle of alcohol and I just chugged in, I just Took a whole bunch of stuff, and I had a bunch of Benadryl. I said, I don't know how I bypass the radio system because I bought all that stuff in one shot with my credit card. So I don't know if the cashier was new, but I bought all that stuff. And I was not, I was blind at first. And I said, well, I'm having a hard time. I said, you know, my eyes are watery, I'm sniffling. And, but I was really crying. So I said, you know what, I, I don't feel good. I said, I'm sick. I have a cold. It's like, I don't feel well. And she fell for it. So I bought all that stuff. And the grandma tried to call me. And she's like, what's going on? So like, the kids want to talk to you. I said, I can't talk to them. I said, I'm not talking to anybody right now. And I could feel the effects of the medicine take kicking in. I said, I got to get off the phone. I said, I'm about to pass out. I said, I don't feel good. And I could hear the kids in the background, mommy, 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 mommy. And I just, and the next thing I never hit the ground. And I woke up, I was in the ambulance when I woke up and I was in the, and I passed out again. I was in the ER and my cell phone was still having the battery. And I was going to call the kids and my boyfriend stepped in and he said, they don't want to talk to you. He said, the heartbreak is they try to call you and talk to you. And you wouldn't talk to them. You say, that's not mommy. And I say, I know it wasn't. He's like, you know you're lucky to be alive. I said, I know. I said, how long have I been out? He's like, you've been passed down the ER for a while. And I said, what time is it? It's like 9 o'clock at night. And I said, can I please talk to the kids? And he's like, all right, let me ask, let me ask my son. He's the older one. Like, say, hey, how's it going? He's like, hi, mommy. I'm mad at you. I'm not talking to you. They didn't know how severe the situation was, but at the same time, they got their heart broken. How old were they then? My daughter is, she's six and a half, and my son's almost eight. Okay, yeah, so they were still young. So they were there at the age where they can feel the heartbreak and understand that somebody not talking to them, but they don't understand why. They rightly so, they shouldn't, but it, it was horrible. Well, let me ask you this, and the reason I 
I want to is, is again, there's so much stigma against or around, you know, suicide and mental health in general, but especially suicide. And myself included, you know, there was a time where it's like, well, how could you be so selfish? What a horrible thing to do. Why would you do that to your kids? But then when you listen to people who actually either have attempted and survived or were about to when something happened and, and stopped them, a reoccurring theme is through the, all the compounding events, the brain has basically kind of been uh, miswired. You know, it's, it's in a place that doesn't even make sense anymore. And right. the, the person who's about to end their life truly believes that they've become a burden to their family, that the, the family will be better off without them. Was that some yes. somewhere you found yourself too? Yes, I did. Because, as you know, from the earlier conversation that I told you that I got my heart broken by people within the process, I was passionate. I was like, I've always believed in honesty. I am like the most honest person you ever meet. And I got my heart broken for being honest. And my boyfriend was never a fan of the fire service. And I had him to fight against. And that's okay. He, he's an outsider. He's not a firebird. He's not an EMT. So he's not within that circle. So he's not understanding. That's okay. So I had a fight against him. And I had the fear of childhood memories from my parents not being supportive and just being rude. Even though they did the cochlear plant for me, they did not treat me as an equal to my brother. They always said, oh, he's, he was easy going. So it all caught up to me and I was bullied in school as well for talking funny and I was overweight as well, believe it or not. I was I was overweight in middle school and high school because I was eating. I ate my sorrows away. So I was the heavy one, so I got picked off my weight. And so it all caught up and I said, the fire service failed me. I failed my kids for putting the fire service first. I was always talking, you know, I'm going to go in the firehouse. I'm going to do this and this and this. I was now being a good mom. I never took the time to sit down and just keep that work side away. Keep the EMS and the work side. Okay, walk the door. Be mom. Be happy. I was online doing online classes, talking to and talking to other firefighters. So that was in within my home life. I was not able to get that away, so it played a factor. And I said, why am I here? He said, why am I still here? I was like, I'm not a good mom. The fire service broke my heart. They, like, what am I doing here? My parents broke my heart as well. I was like, what's the point of being here? So I see, like, I can't do anything right. Like I talked, I had one person that I trusted. He was, I considered him a good friend and he abandoned me. And he just, just stopped talking to me. When I opened up for him, I said to him, I said, I'm struggling. And I said, and he talked to me, you know, I said, everything's catching up to me. I said, I feel like a failure. He blocked me, he stopped talking to me and I don't know if he was just incapable of, what's the word, I don't know if he was incapable 
show compassion and understanding for somebody who's asking for help. So he completely stopped talking to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have like nobody that will understand that I'm trying here and everywhere. And that's, yeah, you're right. We do feel that way. Same thing with a person who lost their way or they're at the war. They see their friends getting shot. They see their friends getting blown up. They ask themselves, what could we have done differently? How could I help them? Should I have stepped in front of the bullet? Should I have stepped on? Should I have walked in front of them so I would have taken the bullet? It's the, the guilt going on. So I definitely had that. It's, it's not easy and it's strange because one of my fire school instructors was a suicide. He shot himself in his home. And I remember being angry and upset. How could he do that? He was so well-liked. He was so well-loved by the community. And he sat there and shot himself. And though did I know that years later, I'd be in the same shoes as him, trying to kill myself, and I get it. I say I say be the happiest, be the nicest person, but there's a few small things throughout the life that adds up into one huge brick that just hits you over the head. Yeah, well, with with what you just said as well, there's a local fire chief here who was again absolutely adored by the fire service he did um he started the orlando fire conference here he used to teach fdic i mean he was known um by so many people matt negley is his name and uh the same thing people were like what's going on he was loved by everyone exact the same words you just used and i think that's the problem people don't understand is again that brain gets so diseased and you know you could put it that way to the point where it's not even functioning anymore it's like a computer that gets a virus so even though someone's actually surrounded by love from people that matter i'm not saying you need to be adored by everyone but the people like for your you know your example your kids adored you your boyfriend adored you and you know and some of the the key people around you know also did as well but these men and women at that point just can't see that and they feel like a burden. And it's it's interesting as well when you mentioned the survivor's guilt, because I think even if you haven't been in that position where you, you lost a friend, I just interviewed a Green Bray that had exactly that happen. He did a switch to, to go um, uh, officiate a funeral of another soldier they'd lost. He switched with a friend of his. That friend of his was killed by a sniper. And in the exact same seat that he would have been had he not switched with his friend. Huge survivor's guilt. But I think the other side that happens far more frequently than, than a, you know, a really horrendous incident like that is just the guilt that you talked about that we're all aware of that we weren't there with our family as much as we could have been or should have been. And that, you know, that job is, sometimes put ahead of our family you know i mean the number of times that i've driven into a hurricane leaving my family to fend for themselves because i'm wearing a uniform and i gotta go and protect a bunch of strangers you know so i think that's a a hugely underappreciated element too but the thing is the the kids respect what you do the kids admire what they do They, they understand that you have to go um so it's finding that balance but i think what's really important with your story is bringing that home 
I think we have to punctuate it and when we come home, be present with our family. It's okay to go and do a shift as a firefighter, as a police officer. A, it's paying the bills and, you know, putting the roof over your family's head, but B, you're doing something that your children admire. But we have to understand that when they offer you overtime or, you know, like you said, there's all these classes and things that we're able to go, nah, as much as I would like to get even better on my job, I have to put it down. And when I go home, I'm not a firefighter. I'm a mother or a father. Exactly. Yeah. Because like I said, most of us within this field are perfectionists. Then when you can't do it, it's like you just seize up. Say, like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, like, like I said, perhaps people have to find that medium. Say, be a good parent, be happy, and then be a good firefighter, be a good chief, be a good police officer, but don't overdo it that you have to be 100% of both sides equal 200% because that's too much of perfection. Nobody's perfect. So I got fell into that trap, as you said, that I brought it home and then I brought my personal life into the firehouse saying, okay, I wasn't, I didn't spend enough time with my kids before I came to the firehouse. So I was starting thinking I had anxiety, say, okay, I, I cut my kids off. I forgot to give my kids goodbye before I was in the firehouse. So it all came together. And like I said, when I came home, I'm like, I got to do this class. I got to talk to this person. I got to help this person. I got to respond to this call. Like, just got to shut it off. It'll, it'll help long term. Easier said than done. But I've been there and it, it caught up to me. Yeah. Well, even with this, I, I went from being on shift to transitioning out and being home every day. But now I'm home with my son a lot more. I'm distracted around him a lot more because I am working. I'm working from home now and I will get phone calls and have to do interviews and all these things. So even that now, trying to say, all right, this is my time where I've got to work and I'll tell him, look, you know, we can talk, but if someone calls me, I've got to do that first. But then other times I'm like, all right, come hello high water. This is your time now. I'm going to turn off my phone or, you know, put it somewhere where I can't see it and we're going to focus on being present. And it is, it's, it's, it takes work. But I mean, I think the, you know, the kids understand, like I said, and I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure that they, you know, forgive you for, for what happened, you know, and, and, and it, it's a culmination of all these things. I mean, it'd be no different if you went to lift something up and you hurt your back. You know what I mean? It's the same, same thing. You didn't yeah. wake up one day and like, Oh, you know, it'd be a fun thing to do there. I'm just going to go and take a bunch of pills and kill myself. No, you want to be happy around your children. So don't let that guilt feed into that because you know at the end of the day you've bent over backwards to raise your children and none of us are perfect but we can learn from you know yeah. mistakes and 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 then grow from that exactly and i another thing is people have this fear and rightly so of talking to a therapist counselor whatever me for their region, um, whether they say too much, that counselor therapist will call the workplace out the one fit for duty when they're really not, if they're not understanding the dynamic of what we work in. That counselor therapist is, oh, they're, they're stressed out too much, you know, they're too, when in fact that person's opening up. Because I've seen it happen that people get taken out of service 
just for talking, opening up to that person is not, doesn't understand that they're not a risk for themselves or anybody else. They're just talking. Yeah. So that's the problem. It's like the peer support needs to be there. And at the same time, the peer support's not good because you don't know who you can trust. That's the hard is It's the natural way of life. So you don't know who you can trust to actually be there to talk to you, catch you, or to keep the confidentiality. So it's a lot harder for the responders to speak up. They don't want to lose a job. They don't want to be labeled as mentally incompetent. Yeah. It's, so they don't, they don't talk. They keep it in. It's like, I just hope that, you know, one day we gain my story out there. People know it's not just a one-time thing. It's a lifetime thing. And it's the work field that we're into that imp- that just makes it magnifies it worse. And I got my medical clearance to be on the track because I went through therapy for six months after my suicide attempt. I talked to the counselor and the doctors and everything, and they agreed that because I was honest and upfront, and they were understanding. They talked to a couple other people too, and they. They signed me off after six months. Because so I told them, I said, I was still naive. I was still, even at two months post-suicide, I said, I want to get back on the truck. I want to be a firefighter. I still had that. It's like, it was still ingrained in me. And then the therapist like, slow down, slow down. It's like, and they started asking me, why? It's like, because that's all I've ever known. It's my passion. It's my drive. And then... At month five, they're like, do you feel the same way as you do? I said, I do feel the same way. I still want to be a firefighter. But I understand you to dial it back and put myself first. And I said, what do you, and I, I found out, asked her, I said, would you consider me medically fit for duty? And she's like, two months ago, or post-suicide two months, no. You were not ready but because of how well you progressed. You showed us that you were fine and that you were going to work through your demons. That's what she called. And I said, you're right. And she signed me off. And, and I said to myself, looking back now, not many therapists or counselors are understanding. They, that asked her, I said, this is unusual. I said I assumed that I would be medically unfit forever for my lifetime. As she's like, there's so many variables and factors that come into that. It's what you're diagnosed with if you have any mental illnesses. And if you have, it depends on your past medical history as well. And the counselor, therapist as well. And how well how well they do the job, how they do their assessments. So I was able to have that conversation. So she's, she's not wrong that it ultimately comes down to the assessment that the casual therapist gives the person. So that's, that's, that's why people don't speak up. Yeah. I, that's what I thought years ago. If I go see a casual therapist or if I speak up, I, I could take it out. It'll be put out there that I'm unfit just because I'm talking. 
Yeah, but which discourages people. No, and that's 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 even more rampant in law enforcement because they get their badge and their gun taken away. Um, yeah, so they, it's the same way too. It's like it's their livelihood. That's all they know. So they put their uniform on, they go out there and they serve to protect. But as soon as they say, "Oh, I had this one call with this kid and he pulled a gun out," but I was so stressed out that. I thought it was a real gun and I was going to shoot him. And the therapist would probably say, oh, well, you're unfair because you thought about pulling your gun out. So it's, it's so complex. Like, the therapist could just, okay, I understand, you know, you were stressed out. It's unnerving to have a gun while there's real or toy gun. But that cop could have his gun back taken away just because he can be how he felt on that call. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with the fire service. Say, okay. I felt stressed out, going inside the burning building. I got caught up in a bunch of wires, and I had a panic attack. I freaked out, and I had to call a mayday to get rescued. That therapist could, in turn, say, you didn't keep your calm. You didn't keep your cool. You got stressed out. You called a mayday. They don't understand that. It's human nature to be stressed out. But in that context, they'll say, you panicked. You're not fit for duty. Yeah. So that's why yeah, people don't want to say the wrong thing. And I have no problem saying saying it now because I'm medically clear and I've been through what I've been through. So I can be that voice to say, okay, I can see both sides. I can see why you can be taken off, off duty. I can see why you can still be on duty. But again, there's so many factors. I, My circumstances is somewhat unusual. Yeah. Well, speaking of the journey, just before we go to to some closing questions, you are working now and, you know, very happy. So you've got a a great environment that you found again. So tell me, you don't have to name the department, but tell me about kind of finding your way back into um, a a department that, again, creates an environment for you to thrive. Yeah, it's it's, it's really amazing. They're for leadership. It's, it's strange. It's like I've always been a leader. I'm, I'm willing to put myself there in front of the people. Somebody does something wrong, I'll put myself there, take the blame, and then work with them later. And this department is the wrong to work with anybody. And it's really amazing. I told them, I said, well, listen, I've been out for a while. I said, I've been through some stuff. I said, are you willing to work with me? And they, they welcome me open arms and say, absolutely. And I fit right in. There's no, there's no clashing of between the boss and the leadership. It's, I can sit down and say, hey, you know, what do you guys think about this? And then they'll say, they'll ask me, what do you think about this? We can sit down, have a conversation, and we can take each other's ideas without off each other without any judgment. Which is unusual. We had a disagreement about how to handle someone. And I said, you know what? That's fine. It's going to happen. But this department is, is really fantastic. It's, they, they see fire. They see work. They train. So, which is a huge plus for me. So, I love training. I love going on calls. So, they have that dynamic. And they have that family dynamic as well. Because... Some of the members have kids too. 
kids around my age, so which is perfect. So I have that they can understand. You know, if I talk and say, "Oh, my son's stressing me out," and he, and he will come back and say, "My daughter's stressing me out too," and they're the same age, so I can talk about that. So we can talk about parents stuff too. So which is which is fantastic, and they understand by me speaking up for mental health awareness that it's the right thing to do as well. They, I don't get judged for it because it has to be done. They don't look at me any different. They're like, oh, you know, she's crazy. I say, no, she's she's been through what she's been through. It makes her a stronger person. It makes her more open. And they know if there's anybody in that department that may be stressed out, they know they could approach me and talk to me. And I could talk to them without judgment and make them feel better. So it's it's really good. It's really it's really. I'm just blown away. I'm just like really happy and I'm really grateful that at this point in my life that I have that environment now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's so good to hear. I want to, want to touch on one more point, but then we'll, we'll go to some closing questions. Like I said, you had these challenges early in your life and Again, you had the mindset of, you know, seeing the towers fall in New York and, and realizing that was your purpose. And you were able to navigate sometimes with support, sometimes with resistance. Um, the, some of the physical barriers to the black and white parameters of what a firefighter should and shouldn't be. For people listening, whether it's color vision, hearing, you know, missing a limb, you know, whatever it is. What's some of your advice on someone, or maybe even, you know, it might be that they think they're too too small, too fat, too whatever, um, the, of creating that mindset of understanding that, yes, there are some hurdles, but it's just about navigating your, your own personal path around those so you're able to still function as a medic, as a firefighter, as a police officer, but you just have to maybe reinvent some of the paths. Yes, I agree with that. And as well, it's kind of the police department, EMS, and the fire service is kind of, we can compare to like dating in a sense. It's like, you know, if you join a station or a department, you don't have to stay there and be miserable. Like, it's, it's okay to move on. You don't have to stay there. Because, like I said, at this point in my time, I have my home away from home. But it took all these years that it have to, people need to understand that it's okay to resign and search for something better, but still keep that experience within your heart. I remember the good times. That doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a bad employee for moving on. You're doing what's best for you. And those people that you've worked with will remember you for you, even though you may not be with them anymore. So there's nothing wrong with moving on. And I think that's another thing with people as well, that they stay somewhere where it's not good for them because they feel a sense of loyalty either to the people or management or to the citizens. But they have to remember they matter too. And that is okay to move on to the next step. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. I I went to four departments in the end. My second one was was where I felt my tribe really was. That was that was my my home, you know, and it was actually geography and family. Same same as you. I moved because my I had a little boy and my wife then wanted to 
move back to close to her family. And it broke my heart leaving that department. And I just really never found that kind of tribe again. I had, I had some good crews, but, um, but understanding after that, that I wasn't happy and move from one to the other, um, was a very empowering and you realize that you're you're a firefighter through the whole time and it's not a failure because you decide to transition to a different department or even out of the career still trying to make the world better yep it's that easy like i said i paid the price but it's worth it i'm i'm glad i'm still being that goofball still doing it just to be there just if i can see one other person smile it's worth it it's funny you say that. It's like there's a little girl. She saw my picture somewhere. There's a food place out of Pennsylvania somewhere that had my picture on the table. And the little girl saw my picture. I was like, wow. She told the person I want to be like her. So the person was telling her about me. So I was like, I may not be in that area anymore, but I still, I still there. I was like a little footprint. So even though you left your department, you still have that footprint there. Your old crew will remember you and you're smiling right now. You still remember the good times. So it's like the small things that matter. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, even the people that you helped, that will never be taken away. No matter how many months, years, you know, whatever it was, you, you did made a difference in that city or that county. Exactly. Yep. Beautiful. All right. Well, then transitioning to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to read? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. The book, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but I did pick up a book. It was about 9-11. And it was written about Tilly's dad, Gary Gaido. And I think it's eyes through 9-11 through the eyes of a daughter. I think that's the name of the book. I just picked that up last month and I finished it. And it's really powerful. And it took Tilly a few years to be able to publish it. She's been sitting on the, on the paperwork for years. It was so hard for her, and I truly admire her for putting that book out. So I recommend everybody read that book and just take a moment and look through the pictures to see the love she had for her dad and the love her dad had for her and the job. He like, speaks to me because her dad had that perfect dynamic for the job because as a parent and as a firefighter, he had that balance where he kept the work at work and he kept family family. You can see in the pictures, you can see in their eyes that he did not bring work home. He did not bring his personal life into work. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was perfect. And I said, if he could do that, then I could do it one day. So that book really spoke to me. Beautiful. I just saw that. I never heard of it. And I just saw it. I don't know where it was on some social media post, probably somewhere. Um, actually, it might have even popped up on Amazon. Um, you know, cause there's always the, the books similar to the ones you've read, but uh, I should probably get her on the show too. I think that would be an amazing perspective. Yeah, it definitely is. And like I said, it's right there in the pictures. It's like, I wish I had that, but it's like, 
I I've looked through the pictures a few times, and I'm like, that's just beautiful. It's like I I want people. It doesn't matter if you're a firefighter, EMT, or law enforcement. What is a civilian? You can see that it's possible to have that neutral middle ground. Yeah, work-life it's balance. right there. It's right there. Beautiful. All right. Well, what about a, a film or a documentary that you love? I'm not, I've never really been big on documentaries or films, so I'll, I have nothing there for you. That's okay. No worries. Um, all right. Next question then. Is there a person you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? He was already on your podcast, Aaron Heller, Chief Heller. He's already on there, so beat me to it. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah, he was amazing. All right. Well, then the last last question before we make sure people know how to reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? I just, as soon as I get home, I make sure I get my kiss, a high hug and a kiss. And I just, I say hi to my dog and I just go out back, weather permitting. I just go hang out with my dog and just play with him, just give him cuddles. And if the weather's bad, I make sure I spend time with the dog first because the dog can't really talk back and you don't have to hear the kids say, mommy, 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 this. So I finally found that small part that helps me decompress, the dog. Just, just something about having a dog. You just pet it and the dog gives you licks and then you're like, ah. I feel cool. The dog didn't talk back. I the dog's not understanding what I'm telling them, so we can't judge. So it, it's perfect. It's having I like I said, I can't emphasize that enough. Have a dog or a cat. They can't talk back. They can't judge you. Just <laughs> pet them and then go hang out with your family. Say hey, how's it going, guys? And the dog's like, or well, the cat's like looking at you. Like, you forgot about me. No, but it's it's really important to have that. It could be a bird. It could be. A pet of any sort it could be an iguana. Just get home, go to that pet, talk to it, hold it, and then go to your family. Love that. My German Shepherd's sitting outside the door right now, so I can totally relate. <laughs> good, good. All right. Well, then the very last thing, if people want to reach out to you, where are the best places on social media or online? I have my Facebook. So anybody could reach out to me on Facebook. I don't have Instagram. I don't have anything else, just Facebook. Okay, beautiful. Well, Aubrey, I want to say thank you so much. Um, to, To overcome a physical challenge, to find yourself in the fire service, I think is amazing. But that's just a small part of the story. I mean, you've got, you know, obviously some some great mentor figures in in your life. You've got some very toxic people, um, you know, with the environmental, I mean, the yeah, the environmental stress. Um which is another kind of untold compounding element, I think, for a lot of mental health issues. You know, for for the courage you had to tell your story about your suicide attempt. But um, there's just so much in this conversation. That's why I love talking to to people in general. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your story today. No problem. Thank you for having me.